Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Heart of White Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Heart of White Campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Celebration community in Heart of White Ministries, please visit heartofwhite.com. We're in a series called Think Like Jesus, and we're working through the book Believe that gives us scripture readings for each week. This is the sixth week. Now, there's three different 10-week uh, series that'll get us through the next year. We're in number six of this 10, and we've looked at five that were kind of thinking like Jesus on the divine perspective, who is God, what is God like, how do you have a relationship with God, and for the next five key topics, we'll be looking at a more uh, living and out on the life, the plane of our real life. Uh, and so we're thinking like Jesus about things that make a difference for relationships, really. And today we'll look at a key topic, the church. Now you'll see in your bulletin, or I usually put an outline, I'm sorry, we've got even the answers filled in. Everybody passes. That's an example of <laughs> grace, undeserved favor. Um, but you'll see in the sermon outline there at the very end, a resource, a particular book that I'm about halfway through, but just loving. Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. You know, the church is a gathering of people. People are broken and people are hopefully on a good day moving from not so good to a little bit better. Do you get what I'm saying? And so the history of the church has highs and it has lows. And one of the honest things for us to do is to face where we've been faithful to the gospel as the body of Christ across centuries, and you'll see great things happen. I remember sending a high school student from our church in Mount Pleasant to India, and as he came back, one of the things he said was, every hospital in our region was St. Luke, Trinity, do you get the message? It was Christian missionaries who brought medicine to that. Toby went on to enter medicine as a career. You see, there's been times we've really lived out the gospel in great ways, and there's been other times not so much. But that's who we are. So we're going to be looking today at this idea of the church and what is it for? What has God intended for it? As part of that, I'm going to read uh, from text that we had in our reading for the week in the book of Acts, which is initially a history. And, you know, I'm going to I give you a typical little humorous aside. I don't know if you're seeing any of that flood of internet information about the prophetic timeline. Well, Jesus speaks very clearly everything you'll ever need to know about the end times timeline right in this text. It's there and it's clear and you need to make sure you hear what Jesus says about the prophetic end time, the schedule and things happening there. So let's stand together out of respect for the word of God. Listen carefully and I'll read to you this first history of the church from Dr. Luke beginning in Acts 1, 6 through 9. Jesus has been crucified. He's raised. He's not yet ascended. But his disciples come to him and say this. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Jesus, Lord, 
Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Breathe deep. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now let's fast forward about 10 or 15 years later. If that was the last thing that Jesus said to them there, let's see what it looked like 10 or 15 years later, Acts 11. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word, but only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak even to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed. And then they turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When Barnabas arrived and he saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, this Barnabas was. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. You remember the persecutor. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated if you would, please. And let's pray. Father, I'm deeply stunned and reminded every time I hold the scriptures in my hand that Jesus spoke to his disciples, God in the flesh spoke human language to a gathering of people, and he gave them instruction. And then a few years later, Luke, a trained physician from Greece, would have talked with those people because it says he went to eyewitnesses. And he would have gotten the story straight and carefully written it down as a key uh, introduction to his narrative about the first years of the world Christian movement. And now those words that Dr. Luke wrote have been carefully preserved across centuries now so that we can, as it were, open up the scroll, flip the pages on the codex, translate, read, prayerfully consider Holy Spirit, you've been involved in every step along the way. We pray now that you would complete that process and illumine our hearts and minds. Take these words, but press them deep in our hearts and minds as your word. Shape us, fill us with a great hope to know you and to trust you. We thank you for your kindness and pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And all of God's people said together, amen. It's an interesting time to look to the Scripture and gain an understanding of the church. We're living in a very tumultuous moment. I just have finished a book several months ago called The Great De-Churching, 
Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? Now, we all have a sense, both in our families and our uh, neighborhoods, that fewer people are making their way to church buildings like this on Sunday mornings. Clearly, that number is going down. There's lots of narratives you'll hear about why that is, but these three authors got together and they actually did research, interviewed, analyzed, and came to the conclusions. What will it take to bring them back? At one time, a person involved with the church and professed faith and belief in Jesus, but now no longer involved in church. That's what it means to be de-churched. Once were, now aren't. Now, the reasons for this varies among regions by, of the country. By age, that was a factor. Education, that's a factor. But you know the most common reason that people in this moment are de-churched? Hang on. They moved. They moved from one place to the next and never quite got back in the habit. Now, let me tell you something. There are real people with real stories of being wounded by churches. And I want to tell you, organizations that wound, people that wound, those stories are real, and we need to be facing them and dealing with them. But research demonstrates that that's clearly not the most common reason we're living through this moment of de-churching. Many people are open to an invitation from someone they know and trust who has a positive experience at their church. They just moved and never got back in the habit. Join me. The people are great. Pastor's a little flaky, but we've learned to deal with that. He's at least honest. Could you say that? Against that background, I want to dig into the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and think about this matter of the church. First, a quick look at the church in the New Testament. The Greek word that we translate church is actually ekklesia, and the first place it's used is from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's some confusion. I think it's pretty clear that Peter was not the sort of person you'd want to build a movement on. He was up and down like most of us. But the confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the rock upon which something can stand across generations, across cultures, across time. This word ecclesia comes from the Greek rooting of assembly of people. It's used in Greek to refer to a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly. It's people who are called out. Another great image in the New Testament of the church is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Paul is teaching about the ministry of the church and spiritual gifts. And he says in 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. It's marvelous to me that in these three chapters, Paul's vision 
inspired and given to us to shape us, is of a body, various members, various capabilities, but working together towards one goal, the body of Christ. It's very clear to say that even a quick look at the New Testament, the word church is not connected to a building or to an organization. Now, I'm a part of various organizations. I've been a Presbyterian minister. I'm a part of the organization of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, for example. But that's not what Paul is talking about. I'm also very thankful for buildings. If you've ever tried to preach outside in Michigan in February, you will be thankful for buildings. But none of these, neither the organization or the building or the church, the church is you and me together. Turn to somebody next to you and wink at them, will you? Just let them know that you know I'm talking about the both of you. You're in this together. So that's a quick New Testament look. Where did the church and this idea of the church originate? If we're going to go back to the fountainhead of all that would flow from that, where do you go to start? And here's where I think the Bible answers that question. Abraham. If you want to understand the body of Christ, the gathering of God's people, you've got to go back to Abraham. Now, I know many times we think, oh, Pentecost, isn't that the birthday of the church it's called? Well, certainly Pentecost happens shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because of that death and resurrection, there's a very new season of God's work. But God has been on mission and at work since early on. Remember, the whole Old Testament was given to us to better understand Jesus, who he is, and what the gospel means. And that begins in a very clear and powerful way with a covenant of grace that begins with Abraham. Abraham. Think of it. One man becomes a family, a tribe, a nation, this ever-expanding I remember reading John Calvin years ago and just struck. He kept talking about the Old Testament church, the Old Testament church. Who was that? It was the people of God from Abraham until Jesus was born. It's what the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says about the heroes of faith, if you will. They were up and down, but all through the Old Testament, those are people who looked to God for their salvation we now look back to what they looked forward to. It centers on Jesus. So we see with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 that he was called by grace. What did Abraham do to be called by God and given those promises? Nothing. The call of God is by grace. It's undeserved, it's unearned, it's not passed on. It's a God who speaks to this man, Abraham. Now, how did Abraham respond? Well, he responded by faith. It says that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited that belief to him as righteousness. So here in Genesis 12, there's an extension of grace and a response by faith. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul would point to this moment in Galatians and Romans and say, ah, Abraham, 
believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the gospel. God's grace is extended to us. We believe that is how you are right with God. Not by circumcision or obedience or worldly identity. So, Abraham was called by grace. He responded by faith. He was given a covenant. Um, for him, it was the sign of that covenant was circumcision, but that covenant meant he was in relationship with the Lord and that he had certain promises. The Lord said, I'll give you a land. You and Sarah will have a family, even though they were on in age. You will have an heir. And in Genesis 12, 3, the words of God say this, all nations will be blessed through you. Now, here's an old, childless, nomadic man. And the Lord says, all nations will be blessed by you. Yes, he's got a covenant. He's got a secure relationship because of grace through faith. He's got promises. But don't miss what else he has. He has a mission. Genesis 12, 1, the first word that the Lord says to Abram is this, go. And go means a change of location. In the Gospel of Matthew, it ends with the words of Jesus that start with that same word. He says, go. Go, therefore, disciple all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. So this covenant of grace begins with Abram, called by grace, responds by faith, given a covenant, promises, and a mission. And he goes out to live that mission. It means he'll be changing location. He'll wander for a long time till he begins to enter into some of the promises or his children or his grandchildren or his great, 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 great grandchildren. The promises, he goes and he takes them, but he's always on a mission. All peoples will be blessed through you. This is how God began to, on earth, work out the mission that would one day find its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and then the mission begins again. So you see, the church didn't simply spring out of nowhere on Pentecost. The church entered a new phase, no doubt, but it's deeply rooted in the grace expressed by God in his calling of Abraham, in the faith of Abraham's response, in the covenant, the promises, and the mission. And now Jesus. So you see, there's a, a purpose for Abraham and for all of his offspring. Now, stop for a minute. Who are the offspring of Abraham, according to the Bible? Now, I know a geneticist would look at DNA and track that and look at one way. But does the Bible give us insight into who the children of Abraham are? In Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Paul writes, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And so, 
verse 9, those who rely on faith and are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Friends, you and I are children of Abraham according to faith, heirs of the promises, his loved and transformed people. There's a purpose for Abraham and for his offspring. You see it begin. It runs the whole Old Testament. They're chosen for God's purpose, not for ours. You're a faithful child of the seed of faith, called to God's purpose, not your own. How are we chosen? Well, from the very beginning, it's been by grace through faith. And what did God choose his people for? Friends, the gospel of God's grace. It's seen in that first emerging at the birth of Jesus, because now a whole new season, God himself. See, the law isn't enough to bring righteousness. Your own nation isn't enough to bring righteousness. No, God himself would take on human form, give his life at the cross for you and me. And in his resurrection in Christ, we have a new identity in him. We are called to the great end point that God is calling his people to. We're chosen for God's purpose. The way that happens is grace through faith. Chosen for what? It's the gospel. We see the birth of Jesus, open it in a whole new way. And Paul will look back and say this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, and you remember God started making promises at the very beginning to Abraham. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. How do you get the promises? Yes, life in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. We can also say that God's promises point both to Jesus and through Jesus to that final, true, and perfect. There were promises made to Abraham. You will have an heir. That heir, for as large as his family would become, that heir would become the heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. We see him in a new and clear way in Revelation 1. He promises Abraham a family from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered as the church. That family now bigger beyond simple genetics, points to the true and perfect one day gathering around the throne of God in Revelation 7. He promises to Abraham a land, imagine land for a nomad. They will enter in and have their land, but out of that land will one day come the one who saves them, the Lord Jesus, and points to the true and perfect, a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21. As promised to David, those were promises to Abraham, but now a promise to David that you'll have a king forever from his lineage. There will come that one. He'll look like a carpenter because his name is Jesus. But as we see in Revelation 9 and 19, he points to the true and perfect king who is Jesus. There's coming a day when the true king will reign and rule. We won't have to worry about who do you vote for now? That's a good day. Do you see how these promises 
given through the Old Testament, met in Christ, even as he points to the true and the perfect fulfillment, we see them grounded in that end vision. So in a marvelous way, friends, we see them point to this true and perfect and we're reminded that we are now in this moment, new body, because we live with the giving of the Spirit after the death and resurrection of Jesus, new body of Christ, but same mission. We read it this morning in that first text. Then his disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's as if he wants to say, forget your earthbound speculation. Because I've got a mission for you. I've got something for you to do. You will be empowered. You will receive dunamis, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Imagine, because of the dynamite of the Holy Spirit, you can begin to turn from your fear and selfishness, from your own sense of inadequacy, from your own sense of too much adequacy. By the power of the Holy Spirit, gifted, enabled, your life flowing under the leadership of God to bear fruit. That is power. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will bear witness for me and for my gospel. First here, then there, then to the utter ends of the earth. You know how that works out. And that word witness, in the Greek, martures, you almost hear the word martyr. The church today is a witness as martyr in China, in Iran. I'm not going to call persecution the fact that somebody only wants to say happy holidays to me. I'll say happy holidays, and I'm happy because of the Lord Jesus. Friends, we're called to be witnesses. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so, I want to close by just pointing to some definitions that I would pull together first. The church is this. The church is the gathering of the adopted children of God, filled with and empowered by the Spirit to join the mission of God. This isn't in the outline, but I want to close with these things. The gathering of the adopted children of God, filled with and empowered by the Spirit to join the mission of God. The church has not always lived up to that high calling. Bullies and Saints lays that out in an interesting, helpful fashion. We've fallen short of God's intention in a variety of ways. Sometimes the world looks and says the church is a collection of hypocrites. We're only hypocrites if we make them think that we're perfect. Perhaps what the world needs to see is a people living in repentance and forgiveness, not in perfect behavior. The church was never meant to be simply a social gathering. I'm thankful for friends and family. I've been the recipient of it this week as you've cared for Mary Lynn. That but so much more. The church is never meant to be simply a social agency. The world will ask, do you relieve any suffering? Sometimes we do. We ought to because God is in that business. But so much more. 
Church was never meant to be a political action committee. In many ways, it's done the best when it's had the least. The church as a center for consumer exchange, you give time and money in exchange for programs, inspiration, or association. No. Jesus said, you will receive power. You will be my witnesses. Therefore, go. God sends us out. Three ways I want to point to the way we understand our mission as the church. First, it has to do with abilities. Secondly, with opportunities. Finally, the motivation or the energy. The abilities are the things we gather over time. The opportunities are the doors open. But the motivation is always God's work in the gospel. I want you to have a big vision of this. The mission is not simply done by full-term intercultural missionaries. The mission is what we are all a part of. I'll illustrate with Brad and Naomi. Their abilities were medicine, great and helpful training. Their opportunities, South America and Central Asia. But what's the motivation? Ask them over coffee. It's the gospel. It's the building relationships with your residents that they might see and know and understand and not simply live through medicine, but live forever because of the gospel. I've told stories about my, my dad. His ability was an engineer. His opportunity was at a natural gas distribution company on the East Coast. But because of that calling and those abilities, the opportunity and the abilities, he could raise his kids. Here I'm I. He could invite his co-workers to his church. He could give generously. And later on, he'd go to different countries and keep the engines on um, generators going so that doctors could do work as evangelists planted churches. Abilities, opportunities, but the motivation and the energy is the gospel. That's what the church is about. That's what God is up to on planet Earth right now, extending the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. I want to close with another mission example that you might not have known was in the news this week. I'll tell you a little of the background of El Hali Baptist Hospital bombed in Gaza City, Gaza, Tuesday. October 18, 2023. El Hali was founded by Anglican missionaries and has existed in the region since 1882. The world Christian movement is bigger than you and me in this moment. For some decades in the mid 20th century, it was operated by the Southern Baptist Convention missions. It currently sits under the Anglican Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem. This article, by the way, and I I never read something like this from the pulpit until I've confirmed it from at least three independent sources. But a link to this particular four-page article, it, I sent out, it didn't get out to Friday morning, but the celebration in, in, uh, in form. The director said this, we are here as an instrument in the hands of God to show the love of Jesus Christ for all people. We are proud that in all conflicts, this hospital was here to eliminate the suffering of the injured, the poor, and to help those in need of a compassionate heart. This is from an earlier fundraiser, fundraising letter from the director, and I'm going to murder her name, 
Shuhali Tarazi. By the way, Tarazi is an Arab Christian from South Carolina. But in Gaza. From a history of this hospital, the Anglican missionaries who opened the hospital in 1882 saw it as an opportunity to reach Muslims, mostly poor, mostly rural, and female ones with the gospel. Early hospital staff regularly read Bible verses and prayed with patients. They partially accommodated Muslims. You see, it's always challenging. You've got to figure these things out. They partially accommodated Muslims who did not want to die under a Christian roof by taking them outside the hospital, but not before offering the salvation message one last time. The British missionaries had more evangelistic success with students at the primary school located within the hospital compound. In 1954, the Southern Baptist Convention's Foreign Mission Board bought the hospital, renaming it Gaza Baptist Hospital. On the Arab street in Gaza, it's known as the Baptist. If you've been in New York City and you say to somebody, my wife is recovering at Presbyterian, they know what that hospital is. In Gaza, when they say, my loved one is being cared for at the Baptist, they're a part of a mission that goes back to 1882. They ministered care for the next three decades, though proselytism was illegal in Gaza. Southern Baptist missionaries nevertheless saw this work as a good opportunity for evangelism, and they also opened Gaza on, Gaza's only nursing school with missions in mind. Friends, that's the church. We know what the mission of God is. It's the gospel of his grace to every tribe and tongue and nation. We need to begin to identify what are our abilities, whether it's gifts of the Holy Spirit or training from college or interest. What are the abilities? What are the opportunities? But the motivation is a God who first loved us. That's what the church is to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. And I pray you'd guide us in the midst of confusing, distracting times. But that just as the uh, ship's captain can navigate by setting on the North Star, one point of light in the dark night on the ocean, as we set our hearts and minds on the one point of light, the gospel of your grace. Thank you that we shall proceed day by day, step by step, that you'll use the abilities, you'll point out to us the opportunities, but the motivation, the North Star, the guidance is the Son of God himself for us at the cross now raised, the tomb is empty, the spirit has been poured out, bearing the fruit of your spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control. We go forth in the fullness of your grace and power. Fill us with hope this day, for we make our prayer in the name of the risen one. His is the glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said together, amen. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.